This is actually the last Sunday in this series that we've been doing, the one we entitled Refresh, The Search for Happiness. And if you're just joining us for the last one, well, better late than never. We've been in the book of Philippians, that little letter, a thank you note that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi is an expression of gratitude for their generosity in helping to support him and in funding the ministry that he was a part of. And our text for this morning, for this last message, is really just a single verse, a single part of a single verse. So if you have your Bibles, you might feel like you only need them for an instant, but but you're going to want to hold them open. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read the first part of verse 14. Here's what Paul says. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Let's read that again. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. How are you doing with that? (laughs) That's the message of the day. And it makes me wonder sometimes, is is this preacher's rhetoric? Is this Paul with some exaggerational flourishes? Did he really mean everything? Is that even possible? Can you be serious and at the same time, in a serious breath, with a serious intention, really hold to that standard? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Well, instead of, instead of projecting off into the vast unknown future, let's just think about one day. Let's take tomorrow. It's a holiday, after all. So let's imagine what one day, what tomorrow would look like lived without grumbling. You excited about this so far? Aren't you glad you came today? At least there's air conditioning, right? So tomorrow, when the alarm goes off, or maybe it doesn't go off, because it's a holiday, no grumbling. We're going to agree on that, right? When you get up, the first person that you see tomorrow, no grumbling. When you look in the mirror, doesn't matter what it is, it's looking back at you, no grumbling. When you sit down at your breakfast table, it doesn't matter what's there in front of you. When you stand on your scales, I don't care what the number says, no grumbling. No grumbling. Okay? When you get in your car to drive, I don't care what the make, the model, the mileage is, or maybe you had to hop on the bus, maybe you're walking and it's still 40 degrees outside. No, no grumbling. When you face a cranky person tomorrow, and you probably will, right? There's not a day that goes by when you don't have to deal with that. No grumbling. If as part of your day, you have some reason to turn on your computer and it's taking too long. 15 seconds, 20 seconds, 20. What is going? I thought this is a modern appliance. How long do I have to wait before I'm open to the vast cosmos of information that is instantly at our fingertips? No grumbling. When, as you're out and about, you reach a dead spot in cell phone service, and oh my goodness, for just a few minutes, you're going to be out of instantaneous contact with the rest of the known civilization in the world, no grumbling. When, when you return home, and you're sitting in your lazy boy chair, and you realize the kids have misplaced the remote again, and you actually have to get up and walk to the TV to turn it on or change channels No, no grumbling. Paul says, 
Let's do everything without grumbling. What if you had just one day that felt like that? Let's, let's step back. Let's talk about grumbling for just a minute. What's it about? It's kind of an important word. It's a scriptural word. It doesn't mean that you never confront or correct or caution or admonish. There's stuff out there in the world that's broken. It needs to get fixed. There's stuff that's unjust and it needs to be challenged and addressed. Grumbling something different. Grumbling reflects a spirit of deep down ingratitude. Grumbling is always a way to rationalize my disobedience to God. Grumbling chokes the heart. Uh, Grumbling clouds the vision. It cuts me off from joy. In the little communities of my life, marriage and friendship, family, workplace, church, whatever the community is, grumbling is toxic. It's relational cancer, and it's contagious. And that's why the Bible doesn't mess around when it talks about what happens when a grumbling spirit begins to affect a community. In the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, 11 different times it talks about how the people of Israel who've been delivered from slavery by God fell back into this bitterness, this grumbling spirit. I mean, instead of being grateful because they'd they'd been set free from 400 years of bondage and oppression and injustice, they grumble. They don't like the new accommodations. They don't like what's on the menu. And this bitter spirit begins to settle in. The Apostle Paul describes what's going on. He says, this is in Romans 1, For even though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor did they give thanks to him. Instead, their thinking became futile. Chapter 1, verse 21. Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Where thinking's futile, where, where hearts get darkened, the result is always the same. Ingratitude. And Paul gives this same stiff warning about ingratitude, about grumbling, not just to the church in Philippi, but to the church in Corinth. And get a load of this one. He's reflecting again on what was going on back in those Old Testament days. He says, don't grumble as some of them did. 1 Corinthians 10.10. This one doesn't get put on church banners, by the way. 1 Corinthians 10.10. Don't grumble as some of them did in olden days, and they were killed by the avenging angel. There's a bumper sticker scripture for you. Kind of scary though, right? Now when Paul actually comes around to saying this in Philippi, do everything without grumbling. I don't think he means, and this is important, that you go through your life with with a chronically negative, bitter, complaining, unappreciative spirit, but you just bite your bottom lip and you never say anything. can't live like that. It's not honest. You'll drive yourself crazy. The only way to be able to live without grumbling is to address what's really going on inside. And that's cultivating a spirit of gratitude, a grateful heart, as we just sang. And it means to be humble enough that we acknowledge, I owe a debt. I owe a debt to God and to other people that I can never pay back. And I'm going to go through life in this humility and I'm going to live with a fierce appreciation for life and creation and what other people have done for me and continue to do. And I'm going to allow that to have the final word on the character that I'm developing. Of course, everybody wants to be grateful, I think. I don't think anybody wakes up and aspires to be bitter and grumbling and ungrateful. But, but how is it that you move from the desire 
to be a less grumbling, more gratitude-filled, grateful, just a markedly different person. Because nobody just drifts into that position. What is it that you do? I want you to remember this. And we've touched on this. It's kind of this paradox. Remember that word paradox has come up multiple times in this series. Here's the paradox around gratitude. We tend to think that I will be grateful to the extent that my life is filled with things to be grateful about. The more things I have, the more grateful I'll become. At least I think we tend to go in that direction, right? Gratitude is a byproduct of my circumstances. If God wants me to be grateful, then God will bring it on. Rain down the blessings, Lord. Just give me more and more of the stuff that I really want, and then I will be more and more grateful. This doesn't work that way, does it? How many of you are parents? How many of you have tried that as a parenting philosophy? I want my kids to be the most grateful kids in the world. So I'm going to give them everything their heart desires so that they'll have more reason to be great. We call kids something when they get everything they want. They are spoiled. Interesting word, right? Rotten fruit. Not really good for anything else. Spoiled. Increased gratitude doesn't come from increased gratification. It's the mistake that we make. In fact, it actually goes the other way around. Paul goes on to say, you still have your Bibles open, Philippians 2, verses 14 through 2. Let's read through the verses there. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, the children of God. And these words are so fabulous. Without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? To shine like stars in the universe. Gratitude, in the end, isn't a matter just of the circumstances that you and I inhabit. It's about the person that we become. It's not about the stuff that I get and hold on to. It's about the character that God is developing in me. And Paul goes on to describe the way this works. Toward the end of Philippians, flip ahead to chapter 4, and let's have a look at these verses, around verse 10 there. He says, I rejoice, that little word again, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Again, here's what's going on. Philippians, a little note sent to Philippi by Paul, a thank you letter basically a way of acknowledging their generosity and contributing to to the work of ministry that he's a part of. But he's going to use this as a teachable moment in the life of the church. He doesn't want them to misunderstand anything about what gratitude really is and where it comes from. So this is what he says. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned. These are amazing words. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. It's not about the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. How many of you can say that? I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. How many of you can say that? And I have learned, this is learned truth. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me the strength. Say that with me. I can do everything through him who gives me the strength. 
In other words, Paul says, contentment or gratitude, it's not something that I get only because I've been given enough of the things that I want. If circumstances in my life are lined up just so. Contentment is a learned skill set for him. It's an acquired mindset. I have learned, he said, the secret of being content. Which brings us to the great paradox, that word again, of gratitude. Very often, it's people who have the least, who are the last, the lost, and the little ones of the world, who have a greater capacity for joy and thanksgiving than any of us. It puts us to shame. And the other side of the paradox, it's often the people who have the most, who earn the most, who possess the most, who are the least grateful. And it makes no sense when you look at it. Why does that go on? Why does the world work that way? Let me tell you the story of a a man named Sean Aker. Sean is one of the leading happiness researchers in the world. He didn't know there was such a discipline. There's this whole field of study, the happiness research field. He works out of Harvard. And he talks about a time that he was invited into South Africa, into a little township in Soweto, to share some of his findings. And he was in this school in a remote area of the township. No electricity, no running water, desperate poverty. I've been to places like that in Africa. You've been to places like that in the world. And one of the things that you do when you go there is you try to find some way to connect What is it? What's the bridge that will allow us to begin to even talk about this opportunity to be together? And he knew that that he couldn't really talk about Harvard. Harvard's not going to mean anything. What is the Ivy League to a little township in rural Soweto? So it occurred to him that he could connect with his students about the shared universal experience of being a student. And so he asked them, put up your hands if you like homework. And to his surprise, every hand in the room skyrocketed up. Yeah, we love it. We love that we get to do that. And he realized in that moment that what Harvard students, the elite, the brightest of a generation, those who had had every advantage and every opportunity, what they experienced only as a burden and a stressor and something, just this weight to be born. Oh, poor me, I have to write another paper. Oh, poor me, I have to take these tests. That there were students on the other side of the world that felt like this is the most incredible gift. I get to learn. I get to write I get to read stuff, and and then they even take the time to test me to make sure that I'm learning it well. I get to go through doors that my mom and dad, who probably aren't still living, would never have even dreamed of for me. Same question. How do you feel about schoolwork? One group grumbles. The other says, "It's, it's amazing. I'm just so grateful. It's not, it's not just circumstances, right? Incidentally, we know that there's a correlation between how grateful you are and how old you are. Guess which way the correlation goes? The older you get, the more grateful you get. Are you finding that, those of you who are past 15? (laughs) In our society, in our society, the more wrinkled your skin, the more gray hairs, uh, the worse your vision, the flabbier thing. This stuff doesn't work the way it used to work. That seems to correlate with an increase in gratitude. Stop laughing at me, Beth. <laughs> and in our society, the decade in which people experience the most gratitude in their life is, get this, in their 70s. 
And there's, I'm looking forward to it another 50 or 60 years. But it's amazing when you think about it. People in their 70s, these people who stopped going to school, many of them, before they even finished high school, experience more gratitude in their daily lives than those who went to college and have advanced degrees. In our world, these people who maybe make less money now than their employed successors, they experience more deep-down contentment and joy, and it doesn't make any sense. It ought to be the other way around. For every dollar in, there ought to be gratitude going out, but it's not that way. I was, uh, I was in line at Costco again. I realized in the first service, I have a lot of illustrations about being in line, don't I? But here I, I'm in line again at Costco. Uh, Lining up at Costco, you know, for me, analytical engineer's mind, this is not a random thing. As soon as you turn the corner from from that last aisle and you survey the long, long array of caches, that's when the analytical part of me kicks in because I need to find the right line, the best. And how do you know the best line? It's not just the number of people queued up. The shortest line isn't the best line. You have to assess the volume of goods in the cart. And not just that, what's the size of the goods? Is it just the paper towels? Because that takes the whole cart. And then, not if it's your Costco and you know it well, not only are you assessing the number of people and the volume of the cart, you're looking at who's working the cash. Because you know she's amazing. She is so, she's like lightning. And if I get in her lineup, I'm going to be through. And that's the other thing. Getting in line is only half the battle. Because once you're in line... You also want to assess that you made the right choice. How am I doing? Is my line moving faster than the other lines? Am I right? Or are they having a technical emergency in front of me? How dare they? And the grumbling begins. So there I am, and the grumbling is settling in. And I notice in the lineup beside me, alongside, I don't know, there's his wife or caregiver, is a man who's slumped over in a wheelchair. And it just, I don't know this for sure. But, but you know, there's some people, when you look at their posture, when you think, you know, this is a new thing for them, they just got out of the hospital, and, you know, here's a chair. This man had lived in a wheelchair a long time. You just kind of knew, looking at him. And it's in that moment that, that it occurred to me that this very thing that I am grumbling about, I imagine he would give anything he had to be able, in that moment, to stand and enjoy the one thing that I was so bitter about just to stand in a lineup for himself and to be able to walk through. There is this, uh, there is this bitter correlation between what we have and, and what we feel. Before I, before I go on, can I say this, because we've got people here who've lived that life and go on living that life, slumped in a wheelchair. And we have people who have done, I think, the most impossible of all jobs, serving as a caregiver for those going through extreme physical and, and emotional, spiritual, mental challenges. Can I say a word for you? You are, to use those words that Paul talked about, you are like the stars that shine in the universe, bringing the word to life by what you do and how you care. And you're teaching us about gratitude and about grace and, and your heroes. Thank you for that.
2014, I had a chance to be in India. Many of you know that. I've talked about it. And we were at this service outdoors in in North India. It was a campus football field filled, thousands, thousands of people. Uh, their worship service was going on a lot longer than I thought it would. And those of you from other parts of the world know that worship doesn't fit within the tight confines of, of 90 minutes or 60 minutes. It goes until it's done. And I should have realized it because as we were going in, uh, we passed a dozen, uh, I guess you have to call them cauldrons. I mean, they were this big, filled with rice. So they're going to stay till dinner at least. This is, this is going to go for some time. And, and I'd been asked to speak, and I was a little bit apprehensive about it because speaking through a translator, that's not an easy thing. And I didn't know this world. And I, so many things that were beautiful and amazing, but I just I didn't know. And, and there was no time to to change the talk or correct the talk. The translator had already been through it. But the hour was getting later and later and later. And I thought, I haven't even started. And and then it began to start, the grumbling, the grumbling inside. Why can't they keep time in India? Why can't they keep time? You know? And what's with the singing? I don't know what they're singing. I don't even like the way they're singing it. I mean, there's... There's a tone and a tone. There's no tone in between. Not not for Canadians. We can't sing the quarter tone. It's beautiful. We can't do it. And at that point, I don't know whether it was written on my face, the translator leaned over to me and said, you know what, most of the people that are here have come from little wee rural villages outside of the city. And for many of them, this is the first time they've ever had a chance to gather in a setting like this with hundreds, even thousands of other Christians and worship God together in freedom. And you look around, and there they were, and tears streaming down their face. And, and the person who's presiding said, anybody want to give testimony? We're an hour and a half in, and then it starts, the lineup. And it's 100 people long. They're going to give testimony. And, they're, and, and I'm grumbling. I'm grumbling because the music is not my style, and it's going on. I know that you can't imagine possibly grumbling because you don't like the music at church or the service is too long. But it was happening to me. Why is it that two sets of people in the same circumstance can have two such vastly different responses, grumbling or or gratitude? And I don't know whether this accounts for the only explanation, but, but I'll tell you what occurs to me and for my generation here in Canada at least. I think a big part of the challenge for me and it's going to be for my kids, is that what many people would perceive as a gift, I've come to receive only as a right. For me to be grateful, I have to see what's coming to me as something that I didn't deserve. And as long as I'm thinking I'm entitled to that thing, I can never really experience gratitude for it. Gratitude means that I perceive this thing coming to me into my life and I'm grateful the person who had such good intentions that they wanted to give it to me. That's why Israel incidentally loved giving thanks to God and they would practice this and they would participate in it all the time. They did it at their meal tables. That was the best time for them. They didn't just pray once before meals. As kids, grace we would just rattle off. As quick as we could, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks God for the grub. And then, then we'd dive right in. 
Not so in Israel, right? They'd established a blessing, not just for the meal, but for each part of the meal. So they would bring out the grapes or the wine. And then they'd stop and they'd say, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, who thought up grapes. What fabulous things these are, grapes. Thank you, God, that you made them for us. And then they'd bring out the bread. And they'd stop again. They'd pray again and say, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, creator of the universe, who made up bread, carbs. Thank you that you are a carb-loving God. Thank you for bringing this to our table. And then they'd bring out the Brussels sprouts and everything would stop. God, we don't think you made Brussels sprouts. These are a result of the fall. But the meal would, would go on like that. And they're learning to see how every bite of food is a gift from heaven itself. Rabbis, in fact, used to get into these discussions with each other about how grateful they could become. Can we thank God not just for the rain, but for every drop of rain that falls? And of course, when we're living in what is just a very, very minor little drought, you know, the past few uh, few days, all of a sudden we begin to remember that rain is such an amazing gift when it comes. See, gratitude always involves humility, doesn't it? When I'm grateful, what I'm doing is I'm placing myself joyfully in the debt of another person. I, really, I realize that I've received something and I wasn't entitled to it. Entitlement kills gratitude. That's why as a generation, I'll say this about my generation, we have more than any generation has ever had and we're less grateful for it than anyone has ever been. When I get something for the first time, maybe I'm grateful. When I get it for the second time, I'm beginning to take it for granted. When I get it the third time, I start to feel I'm entitled to it. And then if I don't get it anymore, I take it to court. (laughs) One of the most amazing stories about gratitude comes in the New Testament. We're not going to read it, but I'll reference it. In fact, it's in the notes if you want to have a look in your notes. It's from Luke 17. There's a group of lepers in a colony in the outskirts of the city, and they see Jesus walking by, and they, they cry out to him for help. And no mystery what they're crying for. Lord, Lord, have mercy on us, they cry out. Luke says that, that when he saw them, he had pity on them. He says, go show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and in that moment they were cleansed. And one of them, when they saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus. And Jesus asked him, said, Weren't there ten of you in that group? Where's the other nine? And why is it just you? And you're a Samaritan after all, a a foreigner, despised by the Jewish people. Why are you alone in this? Now, I'll tell you what, if if you went out and found those other nine, you stopped them at any point during the course of their day and said, hey, aren't you not grateful for what you have? But I'm sure they'd say, you better believe we're thankful. We've got our life back. We can finally go back to our family. We can live in civilized society. You're kidding, of course we're grateful, but, but only one turned around. Only one of them went back. Only one stood there at the feet of Jesus and said, Thank you, Master, Rabbi, Lord, Savior, thank you. There's an enormous difference between the feeling of gratitude and the expression of gratitude. It's one of the big reasons why nobody ever feels like they're guilty of ingratitude. Here's the problem. Andy Stanley put it this way. He said, the problem is that most people in your life will experience unexpressed gratitude as ingratitude. 
people around you, especially in marriages and in family, your spouse, the friend who does you a favor, fixes a meal or, or runs an errand. You know, you think about it and say, of course I'm grateful for them. But when you don't say, I am grateful, what the person will experience is ingratitude or even rejection. Ten guys get healed. Only one comes back. Are you one of the nine? Are you one of the nine? It turns out that one of the very best ways of cultivating gratitude is to learn to express it to do it intentionally, to do it consistently, uh, to do it regularly. And we're going to start to do that right now. We're, we're going to do it first with our eyes tuned towards heaven, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to pray with me some words. I'll say them out loud, but maybe you can just sort of agree in spirit. We're going to pray in gratitude for some stuff that maybe day after day goes by and we never think about this, but we're going to do that, and then we'll move to another step. But first, let's just let's do that where we are. We want to pray and say, God, thank you for for waking me up this morning because you didn't have to. Thank you, Lord, that the four walls of my room didn't turn out to be the four walls of my casket, not today. Thank you, Lord, that when I got out of bed today, there was food in the kitchen, there were clothes in the closet, there was water when I turned on the faucet. Thank you, Lord, that my body still mostly works. Thank you that outside the sun came up. Boy, did it come up this morning, Lord. And the birds were still singing. The trees were still growing. The lake was still magnificent. Thank you, God, for doctors, for nurses, social workers, for medicine, Thank you for the teachers who taught me and the farmers who grow stuff, people who fix things and write things, clean things. Thank you, Lord, for this church, for a Bible that I can learn from, for the Spirit who guides me, for the cross that blesses me with mercy, for for giving me work to do that has meaning. And thank you that when my last day comes, Lord, when my eyes close for that last time that Jesus will be with me, my real life will just be beginning. And you start to see every moment, every beat of your heart, every breath in those ways. That's when gratitude settles in deep in your soul. There's just there's no room left for grumbling. Do everything without grumbling. Don't express gratitude just to God. Remember, Paul starts the letter of Philippians, the very first verse. I thank my God every time I remember you, all of you. Who are the people God is calling you to thank? this weekend, this long weekend. If your parents are still around, thank them. Well, I'll never forget watching my wife give birth to our three children. Think, man, what she went through for them and for our kids. 
And all of those years of feeding and clothing and chauffeuring and worrying and teaching and praying, and it made me want to call my mom and say, I get it. <laughs> took me 50 years, but I get it. When the service is done, you get in your car. If you're married, guys, just look over and, and touch her on the arm. She said yes to you. I and mean, that's amazing enough. But, and she's put up with you. Just say thank you and you finish that sentence however you need to. And maybe you're saying, well, I can't do it now because she's going to think I just did it because the pastor told me. She's going to know that you're doing it for that reason anyway. Just do it. Humble yourself. Or maybe at some point over the course of the next day or so, think about a teacher or a mentor or a friend. And don't just text it. Write it. A nice note. Nobody writes by hand anymore. Or call them. Or arrange to meet them. Gratitude is the kind of debt that never gets paid off because it never wants to get paid off. Do everything without grumbling, Paul says. Why not? Why not? And I ask you to bow your heads with me again. Because we're going to move from the word to the table. And if ever there was a movement that was marked by gratitude, this is it. For 2,000 years, these have been the most gratitude-inducing symbols that the church has ever known. Bread and wine. So as you bow your head, maybe it's been a while since you've given God the acknowledgement that He deserves. You can do it right now. Come to this table consumed by gratitude before you consume the bread and wine. You pray with me. God, our Father, for every good and perfect gift, that comes from above, from the Father of lights, into our lives, we give you thanks. And because our words fail us, at times we, we can only do it with a glance or a touch. Sometimes we do it with music. And sometimes we need to do it just the way Jesus did, by saying, here's bread, here's a cup. They're going to remind you of something that's too deep for words alone. We handle these things as they take us back to the cross and, more importantly, to the love of God the Father that brought the cross right onto the horizon of history. As As you take us there, Lord, prepare us by filling our lives with a spirit of gratitude that will displace any grumbling, with a joy unshakable, with with true and lasting refreshment as a gift from above. Pray it in Jesus' name.